How to accelerate Norwegian climate startups? That is the question that I'll be discussing today and answering together with the investment director at the Oslo-based impact accelerator Catapult, Jörn Hornas. My name is Julius Wesche. I'm the host of the Enter New Energy Transition podcast, and this is its 53rd episode. Let's go. You know, you have this image of being very strong and confident. You have found the secrets. You, you understand something that other people don't. And that might be true. But at the same time, you're struggling. You're piecing together this this little company. You're trying to raise capital and you need to, to project something you're not to be able to do that, uh, to retain employees, to attract employees, to sell to customers, all those things. That was uh, That was insane. It is summer, and that means that I hope that all of you are listening to this episode somewhere where it's warm and where it's nice and where there's nice weather. But it also means that I will be on holiday for some weeks, and that means that there will be new episodes with me on the 3rd of August and on the 17th of August. But no worries, we got you covered. We have got two replacement episodes in August, and the first one is going to be about nuclear, and there will be some students at Antinu who we invited to a recorded session on the questions of why there is no nuclear in Norway, what are the upsides and the downsides, and they will also be consulting with a professor here at Antinu, and that is Eric Wallström. And the second episode, which will come out on the 17th of August, they will be talking about career opportunities that the youth are interested in. So what are the motivators to maybe work in oil and gas and what are the motivators of maybe working in renewable energies and low carbon solutions if you're interested in that then please also tune in on the 3rd of august and on the 17th of august and then on august 31st we'll be back and i'm going to tell you a little preview there will be a lot of content about hydrogen coming up in early fall that's it from me that's it from my side let's now get started in this episode with Jörn. Let's go. Welcome to the Enter New Energy Transition Podcast. Here we go. Today it's about how to accelerate Norwegian climate startups. And obviously I'm not by myself, but I have a great guest with me. He is currently the investment director at Catapult VC, and he's going to tell you what Catapult is and what Catapult does in a second. Before that, he was startup director at the Oslo business region for about four years. And before that, he was actually in the end the CEO of Soundjob, which was a B2B SaaS company, software company in the music industry. And he started out studying business. Welcome to the podcast, Jörn Hornes. Yeah, that's pretty close. And thank you so much. It's nice to get an intro and, uh, and to think all of that happened just because I wanted to study business so I could get a credible entry into the music industry. That's all I wanted and mm. I landed. How come that you were so interested in music and now you actually work at a climate VC fund? If you want to accelerate it, however you might call it. But uh, what was the, the story there? We're a VC with a bolt-on accelerator. That's our value add. But I, I guess my story is just that I followed the things that I thought were really cool and really inspiring. And when I was a teenager, all I wanted was to work with uh, musicians, with artists. That was my passion. And so I just followed that. But it turns out, if you follow passionate people, you discover a lot of cool things and you understand a lot of interesting problems. Uh, at least you're exposed to them. And so I've just uh, been lucky to continue that. Mm. And what was then the, the, the drop in the bucket that maybe made you you know, look more into more into startups and eventually even more into, you know, climate and, 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 you know, yeah. Well, my situation was that I was running marketing for a music label. Um, and in that job, I was exposed to a lot of startups. At that time, Spotify was a startup and different other companies that they just popped up here and there. And what I understood was that the strong hierarchical corporate structure that we had in the company I was working for, where you had companies that needed to approve everything, that was just, it was so slow. Whereas I met people who were just doing things that had a suggestion and it was wild to me, but, but they were like, we're just going to try. Like, uh, you can just do it, actually. There's no committee that approves and there's no one who yells at you if you don't do it because you're the only one doing it. So I kind of understood that startups well, they're really fascinating. And I got an opportunity to join one in 2013, uh, which I became the CEO of. And uh, that started my whole startup journey. And I think I've summarized that before as 
learning more in the first month of that than I ever did studying because the crash course is actually doing it, not learning about it. Mm, that's what they say, isn't it? When you sometimes go into a new job, your learning curve is really steep. And then I guess if you go into a company where everything is new and nothing has been institutionalized yet, sounds yeah. like a steep learning curve as well. And then you discover some of those startup secrets like, uh, oh, there's the inside uh, perspective and the outside perspective. And those things are not the same. That's true, of course, for many companies, but nowhere is that contrast as stark as in startups. You know, you have to this image of being very strong and confident. You have found the secret. You, you understand something that other people don't. And that might be true. But at the same time, you're struggling. You're piecing together this, this little company. You're trying to raise capital and you need to, to project something you're not to be able to do that, uh, to retain employees, to attract employees, to sell to customers, all those things. That was, uh, that was insane. So uh, uh, and good to learn. I, it actually just resonates quite it's interesting that you say just that because I never put it into 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 words like that but this is also something that that you know that I see sometimes when I when I have startups here on the podcast or in other podcasts that I do as well sometimes you know they're very confident to the outside but then you kind of close the mic and then you say then they're like oh okay good that we're done with this now at home the you know the the hut is burning it's <laughs> like I got to do this and this and this and this and solve the yeah solve the big problems and make sure that this company actually survives over the next couple of six months maybe yeah we don't have too much of an incentive to be very transparent right uh, or to be level headed because this industry doesn't favor that hmm. well can you can you elaborate on that well the thing is that you have to show that you are a winner in the venture capital game uh, and a winner can be many things so it's not one a set of traits or one demographic profile, obviously. Uh, but there are some things that, that are true for most uh, startups that succeed. Um, I believe that one of them is signs of excellence, that you are exceptional at something, that you're able to move the world. You're able to convince people to follow you. You create a gravitational pull in your company. And that needs to happen at a time when, when there isn't much to brag about, right? We invest in seed and pre-seed. You don't have much stuff going on. Uh, for our sake, we, our, our portfolio companies usually have a, have a bit of revenue when we invest. So we, got, we can understand some of that stuff, but it's still very early days. And that's true for every pre-seed company out there. You have to uh, use these proxies of excellence to, to figure out if a team uh, is able to do other things. And that part of the, the extreme sense is, I think, um, it's sometimes forgotten, uh, but, well... I don't want to say forgotten, but but we often encourage people to you know start a startup, join a startup, do whatever. I think that's cool if you really really want it. But if you don't really want to do that, don't start a startup because it's super hard. It's a very exclusive uh, part of a very small niche of the of the business world, um, and it's uh, it's top level sports really. It's not mm -hmm. for everyone. Yeah, I guess you you need to be ready to invest so much time and it's always in the back of your head because suddenly you have responsibility, isn't it? If you go to a big company, then you do your little thing and your boss, you know, if you don't make a good job, whatever, your boss comes in and is not very happy with you. But if you if you don't excel, if you have a startup, then there's people that depend on you and they might lose their jobs as well. Right. And then you have raised capital. So suddenly you're, uh, you're answering to, uh, to investors. You've brought people on. They quit their fancy jobs to join you because they, they believed in your excellence and your gravitational pull and everything. And now you're sitting there stuck in this, in this thing. And if you're then running out of money and running out of time and, uh, and, and feel the pressure, that's when you, uh, when you go through it. Every startup goes through this, right? That is the creative cycle that everyone experiences. Um, and so, Uh, I don't want to discourage people from from doing startups. I think it's fantastic, and more people should generally expose themselves to risky environments like that. Risky, but not risky. But it's just we also have to accept that most startups don't really work the way you think they will. They don't achieve the goals you hope they would. Yeah, they say it's like isn't it, that it's a hit business? Like there's one out of ten, one out of twenty, whatever, and then you, that one needs to accelerate or like be so successful that it actually yeah has the brings more returns but that and to cover all the others but then all the others are having uh, maybe yeah trouble time they it doesn't work out in the end what is it from your experience with people who whose startups didn't succeed will these people you know just to take their fright that the fright maybe away these people will still get good jobs afterwards isn't it because they've shown that they can take risks they've shown they can take responsibility 
Yeah, I think uh, I think a startup is a very corporate proof way of learning things. Uh, unlike 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I graduated uh, business school, uh, a startup was something you did if you were unemployable. Like if you if you weren't able to get a job at one of the big firms. <laughs> then you were an entrepreneur. You know? And you had to be an entrepreneur, yeah? Okay. Because yeah. you had to be. Now things are different. I think, I think there is a much deeper appreciation of what goes into entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurial ideals. And also, corporates need to adopt some of those practices. They can't adopt everything, of course, uh, mainly because of speed of execution and uh, autonomy, etc., but they can adopt some of the principles in teams. Uh, and that also leads to more startup people being actually employable, um, which, which is good because, you know, uh, it's hard to do one startup and then another. Maybe it's not smart. Maybe you need uh, a break. Maybe your family needs a break. Uh, maybe whatever. And then to go back and forth, do something else, contribute um, is, I think, quite important. And now the understanding is, is there as, uh, as well. But you mentioned an important thing here, and that is the um, the outlier part of our business. Uh, we we invest so that we can find winners, and that's entirely true. And it's also quite an important point of view on on venture capital as a whole. It's not that we want to uh, want to only find a few winners. I'd love to find only winners, but the nature of our game is that we take risky bets. Those need to really hit, right? Those need to work. And if you think that our business is like others where you have sort of, um, um, you have the uh, Gaussian curve, like a, a normal distribution, then, it, you know, that applies if you bring 100 people into a room and you measure like how tall everyone is, you'll find uh, a normal distribution on that. That's not true at all for venture capital. And it's a very important principle. We follow the uh, Pareto uh, power law curve, right? Um, and that is different. It really uh, means that a few outliers will work and they will sort of pay for everything else. Um, but it's not that, you know, it's not that we, we want to uh, do that. That's an effect of the risk. Yeah. Pareto. Normally I hear Pareto is the 2080 principle, but that's not what you're referring to. Yeah, you know, 2080 principle, but it's uh, so it's it's even more extreme than that. So we expect, um, you know, 80% um, of the returns will come from 20% of the portfolio. Uh, in effect, it's actually more extreme than that. So, so that 10% uh, out of the companies make 90% of the returns or something like that. Yes, Whatever. that's and And the big hits are super important. This is a box office sort of business model. And, uh, and the ones uh, that don't work, they will show themselves quite, quite soon and they will go to zero because there is no market for uh, a seed company that doesn't work, right? There is no, uh, no off taker for those things. There might be like an um, aqua hire or something here and there, but we live in a very illiquid market. Mm. Acquihire is when you try to when you absorb a company to get the talent in the company, isn't it? That's acquihire. Yes, yes, yeah. and and that's a great strategy for a lot of uh, for a lot of teams. And so long as you haven't taken on too much venture capital, that's a good outcome for a lot for a lot of people. Um, but it's it's one out of a few outcomes that uh, that we look for, um, and that's typically when when the company doesn't work great. That's when you try to seek that. Yeah. Jorn, I, I feel like we already like went straight in, which is amazing. But let me uh, maybe let, let's let's go a bit to the to the you know to the initial structure that we actually had in mind, and that is um, that I would love for you to actually give a give a little bit of an idea of what Catapult is and why we need organizations like Catapult. Because you said you are a VC fund, but you're also an accelerator for the ones that maybe not know what that really is. Can you just paint a picture? Okay, what is a VC fund? What is an accelerator? And how, why does it make sense to connect these two? Yeah. So, uh, so a VC firm essentially provides venture capital to startups at an early stage. Uh, and there are different stages. Uh, typically, we use uh, um, the angel and pre-seed uh, terms to describe the very early steps from when you are just assembling people and you sort of have an idea to when you start to build some traction. And we invest at pre-seed seed. You know, that's typically when you're five to 10 people uh, you have some revenue. Uh, you don't have to have that, but typically the, the ones we invest in have that. Um, and you've shown that you're able to ship something. 
And then it goes on to Series A capital and Series B capital. That's when things get serious, right? So from seed to Series A is when things turn and when you can't be an optimist anymore, but you have to be a bit more, you, know, you have to ask the other types of questions. We ask fundamentally optimistic questions. Can this work? If so, how big can it be? Um, but then at Series A and onwards, uh, which is um, venture capital at, uh, at bigger uh, rounds, that's when you need to analyze more and you have more data to analyze as well. So that's for the venture capital thing. We provide uh, risk capital to entrepreneurs so they can conduct experiments. That's our business. And some experiments are exceptionally valuable and we get paid on those. Most experiments are worth um, close to nothing or nothing. Uh, but you can't know before you actually do that experiment. That's the venture capital part. Now for the accelerator, I think a lot of people in the startup ecosystem will have some notion of what an accelerator is. It's where you go to uh, to get some kickstart, acceleration, help to move your startup idea moving forward. And there are different types of accelerators. Uh, the most famous one in, in the world is Y Combinator, a truly exceptional community of risk takers and um, enablers and helpers. And they have a tradition for being a quite early, they're willing to invest in two people that only uh, have one thing, is, which is their time you know, and their commitment to do something. Um, we're not there. So we're actually a seed accelerator, which means that our program is designed for companies that have built something and that have done something. Uh, so that's, that's the difference. And we only accelerate the companies we have invested in. We never invest without accelerating. That's, uh, that's our system. So we invest, and then we accelerate. And what does it mean if you if you accelerate? So does that mean that companies have to come to Oslo because Catapult is based in Oslo? Like, is that in an in-person accelerator is program? Is that a non-in-person accelerator program? Don't even know how you would call that. Why? Yeah, yeah, no. So <laughs> typically, all accelerators brought people together, and it's a magical feeling. You bring entrepreneurs together in a room. You have some investors, mentors. It's it's just it's accelerating. It's truly fantastic. That worked until March eleventh, two thousand twenty. And at that point, we had a bunch of exceptional founders who had been in Oslo for, I think, all of four days. And then they were sent home because we thought everyone was going to die from the air they were breathing. And uh, yeah, you need to go home now. We don't know if the world ends or not. And at that point, we were forced to run our own kind of experiment. Can you do a digital accelerator? Now, obviously, at that point, you know, everyone had video conferencing and, and stuff. So those things worked. But there were a few other pieces in the puzzle that we needed to assemble. And so we, we ran quite a, I would say, extreme experiment on our end to say that, can we actually deliver the value, the quality of, of the product uh, just online without actually being in the room? And it turns out we could, but not in the way we expected. So we, we now don't bring people to Oslo anymore. Uh, actually, there are more people on the outside of Oslo than on the inside. And so I think it makes sense. Since we invest globally, um, that's, that's fine. But it's true. Uh, we we don't run a physical program anymore in the sense that we bring people together in the same room. And then it obviously has a couple of uh, couple of catches, right? Number one, you miss that energy. Um, number two, you miss the sort of immediate momentum that you can create and also observing people up close. And uh, clearly that has uh, a huge value. But we get something else in return. We get to invest in companies that are at seed stage have lives, they have families. Uh, we get to be much more inclusive in that sense. We get to invest all over the world. We get to run a much more efficient program that accurately measures the value of what we do rather than the energy of being in a room with other startup founders. So the program is better, but it's different. Mm. Why is it that you say that you want to go global? Like, I think it makes sense or there's upsides and downsides, but you could also say, okay, uh, we, we are the, the exceptional accelerator in the Nordics, for example. What was the reason or what is the reason for going particularly global? Well, uh, I can't talk about that without mentioning our founder, Tarel Nusta. So when he committed to, uh, to spending all of his time and resources on impact, um, that included the Catapult Foundation, the Catapult Future Fest, which is our annual impact conference, um, and the Catapult Impact Accelerator. We did our first uh, accelerator program in 2017, 
And an impact accelerator was something new at that time. It's still relatively new, but at that time, it was was a wild bet uh, in the eyes of some people, at least. And we also needed to go global. Um, Number one was that there weren't enough companies in our home territory to to, to justify the kind of uh, bets we were making. Number two, we had a uh, a program and a product that had a global and international appeal. And, you know, if, if, if you want to get a bit fluffy with it, it turns out the problems we're trying to solve are global problems. And the entrepreneurs we're trying to enable, they come from anywhere, right? And so we don't have a, a way of saying that, yeah, actually, the Nordics is the best best thing for us. Um, it is if you want to be up close and measure and want to make sure that they only hit the Nordic markets, but we don't. Mm. You just mentioned, like, very understandable. You mentioned this 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 term impact accelerator, and that back in the day when you guys started or when Catapult started, um, that was a foreign concept. Um, can you elaborate? What 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 is an impact accelerator, and what do you try to impact with Catapult? Yeah, well, we try to have a a measurable uh, positive impact on on the world. We catalyze people and companies and capital for good, right? And so it actually means that we invest to make the world a better place. Uh, that sounds a bit Michael Jacksony. <laughs> you, you said you said the word fluffy two minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but it's right. Like that's the only yeah yeah. Please. It's, it sort of goes with the terrain, but, but that is what we do. But it turns out, uh, we also think that that's going to be the most profitable thing. You, if you solve the most complex problems, the most important problems, if you bring the most impactful solutions, you will also be paid accordingly. So we think, actually, you don't have to be convinced of the impact angle to do this. Uh, you merely have to be motivated by profits. Now, it helps to do the other things as well, and it's a great bonus, um, but it, it's just these are the most exciting opportunities that we that we can identify. And also, I, I think there's something, if, if you go back to the startup thing, uh, imagine you're a, you're a student right now and, and you have your whole career in front of you. You want to do a startup, so you start with that straight out of school. I mean, that's ambitious. Uh, most companies that start from, from that point don't really work great, but they were great testing grounds. But let's say it actually works. Well, if your startup works, you're going to spend the next 12 to 15 years on that. I would want to make sure, if I did that, that I was spending my time on a problem that was worth solving, that I was really passionate about, not some boring stuff that makes zero difference to the world. So there is some commitment about that as well. It actually helps you as an entrepreneur be motivated and find that passion because things will be tough and terrible. That's true for any startup everywhere. And you go through this, this uh, within the same day, right? You go from, we're great to, we're terrible. <laughs> and uh, at that point, it helps to have an impactful mission, I think. Hmm. I just was just reminded when you said it was great, and it can be great and terrible on the same day. Uh, once I heard Jeff Bezos say something like, one day your your uh, your stock price is 20% up, and then the next day it's, 20, it's 30% down. But does that make your company a worse company or does it make you a worse person? No, it doesn't. It's just the market or it's just how other people see you. But it, it, yeah, I guess it can be quite daunting going through all, all these processes. Yeah, of course. I mean, you, you, you come out of an investor meeting uh, and the investor was clearly not interested and you feel down. And then you remember that actually uh, about 8 billion people in the world don't invest in your company. That, that's actually true for everyone. Uh, mm. If you find a handful of investors uh, for your company, that's great. So by that logic, most people will say no, uh, either directly or, or indirectly. Yeah, you have to get ready for that, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. But, <laughs> Jaren, you you Catapult is based in Oslo. It's based in in Norway. So so maybe maybe let let's have a look uh, and zoom in a bit about uh, more into the Norwegian eco uh, startup ecosystem, because um, obviously we we live in a country in which. Yeah, the, let's say the national business model is a bit at stake in these days because, you know, we, we lived in the last decades here. Not that I, I only came two years ago, but, um, you know, on oil and on gas and all these kind of products. And the question is like, where, where, will, where will Norway yeah, make money in the future? What, what value can it actually bring maybe beyond fossil fuels? So uh, some people say, okay, we have to have, as part of the puzzle, we have to have a strong startup ecosystem to maybe harness opportunities and also threats or like turn threats into opportunities so the question for you is like where do you see where the norwegian startup system is yeah where where, where is it right now what what's where is it good and where is it maybe not so good like where does it have weaknesses 
Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think it's helpful to have just a short historical perspective on it, because if we rewind to the 90s, actually, there was a vital startup scene in Norway, uh, and several great IT companies were built in the dot-com era. Uh, and then the bust came. Uh, that, was, that was really tough, um, and it, it happened everywhere. But unlike... Sweden and Denmark and Finland in Norway, uh, I, uh, IT entrepreneurs could actually escape to a sector because at the same time, uh, oil and gas, uh, and, and in particular oil, was on the way up. Uh, you'll remember that the, the bar- a barrel of oil was like six, seven, eight dollars or something. It was ridiculously, uh, or it was, I mean, it was, it was cheap uh, 25 years ago. But if you look at that curve uh, and the increase of a price of barrel of oil uh, all the way up until 2014 2015 it was just up and to the right and that attracted so much talent so much capital so much um, mind space everything really Um, and in a small country like norway that is an important force it meant that there were simply not enough attention towards the other parts of the economy Whereas in Sweden, there, were, there was nowhere to hide. So you actually had to keep on building companies. So you can call that sort of the last generation of founders. Now, a lot of smart people work in oil and gas and have built incredible businesses in oil and gas. Um, so I, I think in one sense, we can, we can wish that that would turn around. But I take a more pragmatic approach and say that, you know, it, it's a legal product and it's quite necessarily in, in the world today, um, in the world. And Norway has built a lot of incredible businesses and launched innovations on that. Our job right now is to take all of that momentum, take the capital, take the opportunity, take the technology, the resources, and turn that into something that is greener, something that is future-proof. Because one thing we can know about fossil fuels is that it has an end uh, stamp somewhere. We just don't know when. And so the bet is... Can we continue to invest right now? Can we accurately predict when uh, when the last barrel of, uh, of profitable oil will be pulled out of the North Sea? I think that's a risky bet, but it's risky for, for several reasons. And I think the upside from focusing on, on green energy is dramatic, but it is an investment like others, right? It's an investment where you actually take a risk and you don't know exactly when the payout will come. And so that represents... Uh, call it a weakness, the the lost generation, but it's also an opportunity in the immense industrial base we have in Norway, and in the under, understanding we have of the heavy industries and, and the sector, which I think leads to uh, to where opportunities are found right now. Hmm. But so you would you kind of say, I kind of read here between the lines, but you would say, okay, back you know twenty five years back there were these. There were some good founders, there were some good companies that came along. Then yeah. the, the the ecosystem was maybe dragged down a bit. There was not so much fertility happening. I mean, where and now it's picking up again. Where where are we now? Where if you look at the last five years now, maybe. Yeah, the, the risk on risk off perspective is quite important. And and in two thousand two two thousand three, uh, it was just terrible. Uh, if you listen to the North Zone story, North Zone being you know the premier. Norwegian uh, venture capital firm now turned, you know, international superstars. Uh, their first and second fund uh, was, they were not excellent funds, um, according to, to themselves, right? But they kept on investing and then they hit it. Their theory was, was, was quite simple. There, there are exceptional people building in a category that is just dramatically increasing, you know, online businesses at that time in the late 90s. Uh, that was going to be going to be huge. But... Our ecosystem needs risk to be able to conduct these experiments. And when, uh, when there's no willingness to finance these things, well, of course, you, you stifle the whole thing. We had a theory in 2015, 2016 that, that these things are going to change. At that, at that point, seed investing in Norway was just almost at an all-time low. It was really, really bad. But the thinking was that, I mean, Norwegians, we're not that dumb. Surely there are entrepreneurs building interesting things. And we're not that lazy, call it that, from the welfare state. Surely the welfare state has some exceptional opportunities as well. It allows for the creative freedom and the the opportunity to actually build things without risking, uh, risking too much. 
there's got to be an ingredient here to build great companies. And so we saw an exponential growth in the amount of uh, seed companies financed from 2016 and 17 onwards. And we also understood that when these first companies from that wave uh, succeed, they will in turn spread capital all over the ecosystem. That happened to many of the early hits. Uh, Kahoot is an obvious example, right? Coming out of NTNU, um, the capital that was distributed to early employees, to investors, has since been reinvested into hundreds of, uh, of companies directly or indirectly. And those types of companies are super important. We were just a decade after Sweden with them, but we have several of those coming right now. And the serial entrepreneurs uh, or, or the ones that have understood it, they have the playbook of running an international VC firm no, or, or VC, VC startup, and they have the... Um, uh, the contacts as well. They can actually uh, get financing to these companies. That really helps. That mm. radically increases the speed of execution. Do I hear a little bit that like five minutes ago you said, okay, if you if you study and then you want to start a company, it's very unlikely that that company actually is going to be successful. And now you kind of say, you were just referring to these serial entrepreneurs that kind of know how to build a business. They have maybe the contacts in the VC uh, you know, system so they know how to pull these strings together. Um, so, would you would you say that that's that that's one of the key ingredients, or that that actually increases the likelihood and decreases the risk of a company being successful? Yeah, it it, it can dramatically. But here's an issue: when we when we talk about uh, talk about these general traits, and there will always be outliers, right? There will be the uh, prodigy uh, launching a company at the at the ripe age of 17 and, and being wildly successful, right? Solo founders usually don't do great, but if you look at the top uh, top startups in the world right now, the, the ones that have generated the most wealth, you'll find solo founders everywhere. So there are always rules to disprove. We can observe general traits, and and I think a general trait is that when you're starting a company. Um, it's usually really good to have a co-founder uh, because co-founders help you when things get tough. Co-founders can also uh, accentuate uh, the skills you're lacking. Um, if you have someone who understands business and someone who understands tech, then you, uh, you have complementary values. Super important. You can cover that in other ways as well, for sure. And what we think that we do with, with an accelerator is that we, we help companies figure out the things that are typically true for a lot of startups, you know, the pattern matching and understanding what's common for, uh, for startups. That's where you can fix a lot of things. And, and to the experienced people, uh, you can identify those things and fix them. Yeah. Let's jump back into the story. So, so the history. So you said, okay, 25 years ago, and then now we accelerated to 2015, 2017, when you guys started up. And now, so and I kind of understand that then the years where things were flourishing, we were it was getting, going great. But now, like for one and a half years, we are having, yeah, there's, there's from, for example, a lot of trouble when I talk to, 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 um, to startup people, finding, finding, finding cash, finding, finding, um, finding money. So from your perspective now, where, where are we now when it comes to the startup ecosystem in Norway, maybe in the Nordics right now? Well, now we're in a very robust place where we generate uh, we generate a lot of uh, really high quality investable venture businesses, and I think that's uh, uh, a lot of people are looking to the Nordics. Uh, so just in sheer uh, entrepreneurial qualities, there are a lot of great founders uh, being uh, being financed, and a lot of great startup experiments being run. Uh, that's that's one thing. There's also maybe or arguably a profile of companies being backed in the Nordics that is even more interesting. And I think, uh, I think the number of impact companies, for instance, is a, is a good indicator. More impact ventures are being backed here than in any other region. Uh, some would argue it's because you know, we, we can afford to focus on those problems. And I think that might be true, but I think it's also a reflection of the, the general state of, uh, state of these, uh, these countries. That we have, um, we have a good understanding of challenges, a regulatory landscape that is favorable, um, a corporate sector that is willing and uh, and also incentivized to um, to pay for impact uh, solutions. Uh, there's uh, there's just a, a good awareness and, and a general level in society that is favorable for these companies. Mm -hmm. All right, but you but would you would you also 
sign that right now it's a bit harder maybe to find funding than like two years ago when because we have also an economic downturn or some economic risk that people don't know how it's going to be in the next couple of years and we have inflation and we've got high high um what's that uh what's that studente yeah in Norway, for example yeah that's uh that's not an aphrodisiac for our uh for our business for sure uh so so macro is important macro uh will tell you what the price of capital is. And, and that is a very clear indicator to how many startups will be financed. So uh, I mentioned the optimism that you need at seed and pre-seed. We need to be optimists, right? We also bet on a market that is 10 years from now, but we get the money to fi finance these things in today's market. And when we look at, at people that uh, back these companies, uh, the ones that invest in our funds, they're the LPs, limited partners. Uh, it's an important concept that many people in the startup uh, ecosystem don't fully appreciate, I think. You know, uh, VCs, we don't have all of the money. We go and fundraise. I spend a ton of time fundraising from LPs. And those would be family offices, um, maybe institutional capital, maybe a pension fund, uh, high net worth individuals, could be a corporate venture capital firm. Um, other things, uh, other sources of capital like that. Uh, some of them have stable cash flow and uh, a long-term perspective. Others are, say, bogged down in uh, real estate investments that are currently yielding nowhere near what they want them to yield. Uh, they are servicing uh, interest rates that are way above what they expected, and they don't have the cash flow that they we're used to having in 2020, 2021. Maybe they were even over-invested in some venture firms. You know, um, a lot of capital was deployed in 2021. And what we see right now is, uh, is this cycle uh, repeating. So after uh, exuberant over-investing, uh, if you will, I'm not sure it was over-investing, but there, there was a lot of money pumped into the system. And some valuations were very hard to understand. Let's put it politely. Now we see the opposite, right? So many companies are struggling and spending way too much time raising capital. It's a very inefficient system and we're risk off and we're sort of uh, forgetting that, uh, hey, you know, I mean, people are probably going to get up uh, and go to work uh, a year from now, two years from now. They're going to buy and consume services. Uh, the world is going to keep on ticking and we need these new solutions. You always need to invest in seed companies. Yeah. And I, but I guess it also, maybe it's also kind of a cleansing effect that the ones that don't manage to get funding are the ones that are probably, you know, they're maybe not as promising, um, but maybe yeah. they don't get the chance then to actually, to actually make it work, isn't it? Yeah, to some degrees, you, you can say that it's now very selective. Uh, the very best teams will always get funded. There is always capital for exceptional founders that are building something uh, in an attractive market. So that market is open. Um, but for anything that isn't sort of like an obvious hit, I, uh, let me give you an example of an obvious hit. You have three people coming to your office and they have built uh, Gelato and Uda and Kahoot or something like that, or Spacemaker or Utovo or like some of the fancy Norwegian uh, growth companies. They come to you and say, hey, we've identified a problem that is ridiculously large and we have built a B2B SaaS uh, to really address this problem right now. Here's the pathway to, to doing it. Here's the money we need. And here's what we're going to do with it. And in a year, uh, when this works, this is the next tranche of capital. And you look at that, and that would be investable always. What's not in, uh, necessarily investable and is a big problem now are all the non-obvious things. But we live in a world where we need to finance many different things because we don't know what works. Again, nature of experiments. It's a super important principle for everyone to understand about, uh, about startups. These are experiments that you run, and many of them will fail, and the ones that work will work in different ways than you predict. That's just the way it is because it's so complicated. There are so many factors. So you need to just make enough investments and back enough different teams. And if you only back the ones that are predictably good, then maybe that's not the most inclusive way, and maybe it's also a way to ignore problems that are typically ignored. Uh, and I think, I think we run the risk of missing out. You're in, you say that, that Catapult is an, is an impact investor. So I was wondering, what are the different areas that you are currently in, 
looking into. I know that Frederick, which is, I think, CEO of, of Catapult uh, VC, has talked a lot about oceans. And um, so can, can you maybe give us an idea, like, wh where do you look or like, where do you see the challenges that need to be solved? And then how do you find these companies that mm, you might want to work with them or do they find you, for example? So what is the, the, the areas and then where does this the flow come from? So when we started in 2017, we had an idea that uh, impact startups uh, needed to be uh, financed and also they needed a community around them. So that, that's when we built the Impact Accelerator. And in 2018, uh, the team started to, to go deeper into the oceans. And ocean is an obviously huge um, industry in Norway. So we have a very credible background for going into that. It's also underinvested um, and super important if you want to have a climate impact. If you want to have climate impact, you simply cannot ignore the oceans. Um, we also saw that Africa uh, was a generally very important region for us with many companies, some of the best performing companies in our portfolio uh, coming from uh, African countries, maybe because they were not obvious winners uh, for everyone else. So, so that actually when they got capital, they overperformed and, uh, and over-indexed. Uh, and so that led to Ocean and Africa being two domains. The third one is climate. And climate was apparent for us when we uh, when we were thinking about where Catapult was headed in 2020. We saw that at that time, half of the companies in our portfolio were already clearly climate oriented. And we looked at the challenge for the next decade <clears throat> and we figured that um, our social impact companies uh, could also be justified under the climate mandate. Climate and social impact is actually often hand in hand. I'll give you an example. We invested in a company that does solar mini grids in rural Nigeria. And so it's super important because you replace coal and uh, gas. So it has an obvious climate dimension, but also the social dimension of bringing electricity uh, to people uh, either off grid or with very unstable electricity. <clears throat> That's clear for educational purposes, for, uh, for health, for so many outcomes. Uh, so so these, these things are connected. And that led us to really focusing all of our effort on climate uh, companies. And add to that, if we if we look at the, the domains we invest in right now, energy being maybe the biggest one, transportation, the built environment, enabling technologies, in here you find the biggest sources of CO2 emissions right now, and arguably I would say the most investable domains. It's just these are the areas you want to invest in. So it works. Where do you see the biggest biggest opportunities, though, when you, when it really comes to climate climate investments? Like you just mentioned, built environment. Um, like what are like? I feel like yeah, Norway has a lot of heat pumps, for example, when it comes to built environment. But a lot of people don't use electricity in a sensible way because electricity has been so cheap, for example. So I'm not sure if there's a technolo technology that maybe can solve that that challenge. For example, what what yeah. are the things that you see that where where there are the challenges that can and should be solved straight up. So that's interesting using Norway as a sort of a test bed for, uh, for different types of technology. Uh, we have an advantage in our economy in that well over 90% of our energy comes from hydropower. And uh, that hydropower is exceptionally uh, clean. It is, of course, uh, also carrying a huge uh, physical impact on nature. Uh, loss of biodiversity, land usage, uh, the obvious things. So every energy source has a huge cost. Uh, I think that's important to, to remember. But it's an indication of, uh, of also the, um, you know, when, when Norwegians use more electricity than most other nations, well, uh, yeah, we don't use gas to heat up our homes, for instance, or to cook. And so we include that in the, um, in the calculations. And, and we're relatively efficient, actually. Um, so... Uh, I think that's that's an indication of, of of seeing that some of the policies, public policies that have been uh, been in effect in Norway for a long time, heat pumps uh, and incentivization for that, insulation in houses, uh, many many of those things have been effective at at pushing new technology. And heat pumps are now um, actually forming quite an interesting S curve in other markets in the world. So it turns out that can be a very attractive and investable. Category, I would say that energy in general is is the number one priority. Um, 
Maybe one more question about oceans, and then we'll we'll go to kind of wrap wrap up this uh, this episode. You, you said that you guys invest in ocean, and I feel maybe I'm not the only one who doesn't really know what kind of projects or what kind of you know problems need to be solved there. Could you give us two minutes of like what you guys invested in in this ocean space? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples of companies that we have invested in. Um, Gazelle Wind Power, for instance, uh, they do uh, mooring of uh, offshore wind platforms. Uh, that's mooring means huge... connection to the ground, isn't it? Yes. So, uh, so it's uh, it's a floating uh, offshore wind turbine that is. I mean, if you if you if you look at the market right now and where that is headed, it's just an immense challenge. And and for the for the qualified bets of which Gazelle is, uh, I would say in a in a leading position, uh, that's a, that's a domain that is uh, hyper investable for us. Uh, so any uh, energy generation, uh, typically for offshore wind, uh, is quite big. If you look at seaweed, uh, if you look at alternative proteins, uh, carbon sequestration. That is a gigantic sector where we've made a lot of uh, bets. You can also see um, electric uh, electric uh, propulsion uh, in the oceans. I don't think I need to remind people that uh, shipping is a nasty business. Uh, it's necessary and it, uh, it's, it's the way things move around. But we need to at some point address the extreme emissions. That really makes an impact. So, uh, so those are some of the domains that we uh, we're happy to invest in, in in the oceans. Also, cleaner ocean. It's just a huge heat sink for the world. And if our oceans go out of balance, we might end up with tipping points. And tipping points—that's usually the thing you don't want to have in climate. No, because you don't know what happens. Yeah. You don't know when when really bad things happen. Yeah, and right now it's only June uh, that we're recording this, and there's in the last weeks there's been a lot of news about the heat and anon anomaly of the Atlantic Ocean right there, right, right now, right there. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a weather and climate, but it's it's kind of easy to conflate these things right now because uh, things are getting weird. They're they're about to get weirder, even more. Yeah. When finishing this up, Jörn, can you give us me an idea from your perspective where maybe, you know, what we could maybe do in the Norwegian startup ecosystem? What could what could be done better? So I know you guys have a very global view, um, you know, global, then maybe Nordics and then maybe Norway. But this is a podcast that, you know, deals mostly with the energy transition in Norway. So so if you would be, I don't know, if you would be, if you would be a policymaker, what would you do? Or if you... If you're, I don't know, would you look for more funders or do we need more angels or do we need better state funding? What is it? Is there anything that comes to mind straight up that where you were saying, okay, this is actually, that's kind of a missing piece or that's something that we, we should really look into and that's what we need more of? Yeah, I, uh, I think I would dramatically increase uh, government matching of uh, venture capital right now. So let the, let the government be uh, an LP in many more funds and, and 10x the amount of capital. Or maybe not 10x, but it, it, venture doesn't scale that easily. But I think right now there are a lot of underinvested areas in Norway and a lot of entrepreneurs that, that are stuck in very capital inefficient ways. Uh, this is a great way for us to, to de-risk, uh, but mobilize private capital, which is very important. Let private firms try to select winners. Uh, and assume risk uh, because then then you get to get to be part of the upside. Also, maybe um, uh, use tax as a as a way uh, or tax rebates to incentivize green projects rather than maybe making too too many big bets on technology per se. Um, let there be let there be a discount uh, on tax on projects that are deemed green. Use the taxonomy as a, as an example. That way, you can really encourage uh, private markets to to make these bets which is what you need. You need private markets to make a lot of different experiments, run them and see what works and then follow that. I would want us to have a much better understanding of risk in our society. I think uh, the Nordic, uh, the Nordic uh, states are admirable and I love um, how our systems work in terms of general safety, uh, the compact nature of, of our societies, the egalitarian approach. I love all of that, and I think it's great. It's it's first and foremost a huge value, but in Norway it has a um, I don't want to say a consequence. Um, we don't understand risk, and we we don't uh, sufficiently uh, sufficiently award uh, people when they take risk. 
And risk is also relative, right? Isn't it risky to stick around in a corporate job and do something you don't like? Well, that's super risky. Isn't it risky to try and continue with something even though you don't get any, uh, even though you know that the industry is going to be gone in X amount of years? You don't know exactly when. Yeah, that's risky. There's risk everywhere. We over-accentuate the risk in startups and we underappreciate the risk everywhere else, the risk of not acting. And so uh, I'd want more people to do that. Finally, if more pension funds uh, were to back uh, Norwegian entrepreneurs, I think that would be great. Uh, use the California model, if you will, uh, in, in the US um, and in the Bay Area uh, in particular. Nowhere in the world is risk better understood and uh, entrepreneurs more backed than there. I think we could, if we could take even a fraction of that energy, we'd unleash a horde of experiments and that would lead to immense value creation. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned, obviously, you mentioned the state, you mentioned a better understanding of risk in whole society. If you are now talking to someone who wants to maybe like you know, a normal person that has maybe a corporate job or that but has a little bit of capital on the side or maybe has some specific, I don't know, has some specific skills when it comes to marketing or when it comes to sales or whatever it is. What could people like that do? Do you think that there is something that they could leverage or is that something that you know, that doesn't really make sense if then a bunch of people like reach out to startups and say, hey, I can help you there and there and there and whatever. Yeah, it's, is there it, anything there or is that, is, that, is that not really helpful? It's sort of a joke for everyone who works in or with startups. Uh, when we look at or meet corporate people, uh, they always want to have like a strategy job at a startup or something. That job doesn't exist. There are only two jobs at a startup. You, you build or you sell. Uh, or you can build and sell, you can sell and build, but there is no strategy job <laughs> at a startup, which is typically, you know, that is a more corporate mindset of things. But there are tons of things that, that people with that kind of experience can do. Uh, think about, for example, just backing someone you know that is building a startup. You know, listen to them, uh, hear them out, uh, give them introductions, um, understand more of what a startup is, help out uh, someone else, just increasing the, the level of understanding in our society about startups and the nature of these of these things will be really helpful. And if you can, I mean, back someone. Uh, angel investing is, is incredibly risky. You should assume that the money is lost, but it's a great way of learning. So if you put 50,000 into a, uh, a startup that you really like with some founders that you think uh, have a chance, do that. Not because it's going to be profitable, because it probably won't, but because you'll learn so much from exposing yourself to that. And that will maybe lead you on to something else. Maybe three years down the line, you join a startup or you start a startup. That's great. And that's really rewarding. It's, it's self-development. Nice, Jörn. Thanks for these, these motivating words in the, in the end. If people are interested in learning more about Catapult and maybe even hanging out with you or like reaching out to you, what's the best way to, to find you? What's the best way to find Catapult? Well, we and I, we're quite easy to find. Catapult.vc. Uh, I'm very receptive to, uh, to taking meetings or, or listening to what people have to say. I generally believe that the upside of being nice is uh, limitless and the downside is close to nothing. So, so I want to hear about ideas. And if you are building a climate venture and you want to seek out uh, an investor that understands that and wants to back you, go to catapult.bc slash apply. We listen to everything. Sounds great. Jörn, thanks for joining for the podcast today. All the best to you and Catapult. Take care. It was a pleasure.